Welcome to this session of Family Law and More. My name's Callum Hurley. I'm a consultant barrister at Unit Chambers. And my name's Liana Chan. I'm also a consultant barrister at Unit Chambers. We are joined today by our own CEO and senior consultant barrister, Lisa Edmonds. Thank you, Lisa, for joining us today. Hi, both. Hi. Thanks, Lisa. In this session, we're going to talk about Part 25 applications. We feel this is a particularly important topic in light of the relaunch of the PLO and the statutory requirements to complete care proceedings within the 26-week time scale. In the President's view from November 2022, he highlighted that since 2016 and 2017, there had been a 33% increase in the number of experts instructed in terms of your, your view, Lisa, have you, in terms of your, your own practice, have you experienced, what's your experience of, of uh, Part 25 applications and have you seen an increase in those applications being made? Thanks, Liana. I think since the PLO was launched first time round, there definitely was a gradual increase in Part 25 applications. So, of course, we're talking about public law proceedings And you would tend to find that there was an emergence of those applications relating to independent social work assessments because those undertaken by the local authority um, were inadequate for a number of reasons. And also in recent times, I don't know what your experience has been, um, Callum and Liana, but there has been a real culture of permitting psychologists to be instructed in cases and we know from recent decisions and the practice notes that have been issued to us from our judiciary that again that culture has got to almost be wiped out it's not going to be tolerated Mm. So we seem to be going back to first principles where social workers and children guardians are being um, named and promoted as experts within their own field. Mm -hmm. And of course, we know that if we instruct experts um, outside of social workers through the local authority or guardians within CAFCAS, they tend to encroach on the 26-week timetable. So everything is actually fitting together with the relaunch of reducing the length of time proceedings take to conclude. And I think one of the driving factors behind that is to remove unnecessary experts And the reframing that the judiciary is inviting us, encouraging us to adopt is we've actually already got two competent experts already in terms of social workers and guardians. And actually, you're not going to get out of the starting blocks if you're asking for an expert that is going to take the timetable outside of the 26 weeks. So in my recent experience, there definitely has been a clampdown And I knew also that there have been an influx of appeals to really cascade that message through that um, 26 weeks means 26 weeks and going back to basics of eradicating that culture of engaging experts almost as a crutch sometimes um, isn't going to be allowed anymore. Have you had any different experience Callum to that? 
No, I mean, just to follow on from that, I think in particular with psychologists, it's it's really interesting. I mean, I think there's been a bit of a culture shift now, as you say, to social workers are experts, guardians are experts within their field. But also, you know, the type of cases that we deal with within public law proceedings where there are quite complex issues which might stem, for example, from childhood trauma. You know, I've had cases where advocates, professionals have said, we know that this this person has this trauma, that they'll need therapy. What is a, a psychological assessment, for example, going to tell us mm-hmm. beyond that? Um, and why is it necessary in those circumstances? So, no, I agree. I think there's going to be a, a real sort of crackdown on those expert instructions and why they're particularly relevant, not only necessary, but why that particular expert is relevant to resolve those proceedings. I don't know if Liana has... Any other experience? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, similarly, in, in um, some of my cases, that there was, you know, discussion about whether certain applications uh, for expert assessments should be made. Um, and the judge, um, certainly in one case, the judge was very clear, you know, he said it, it may well be helpful, it might be desirable to have that application. And at this stage, I'm not, you know, I don't, have a closed mind to that but but at the stage we were asking for it he said that he he was not satisfied it met the necessity test um at that point can i just jump in on something callum said about psychological assessments because one of my bugbears for several years has been identifying the end point when you engage a psychologist to assess mm. usually a parent who has sadly had a traumatic start in life or there's been trauma that is impacting on their ability to provide that consistent level of care that is required. And you can forecast that any psychological report is always going to conclude with a recommendation of some sort of therapeutic intervention. I've never had a case where a report has been filed and the recommendation is no work is needed. So then if you are going that far, spending that money, delaying proceedings, you've got to deliver on the other half of what that's all about, which is identifying how the parent can then access the recommended therapeutic intervention if they're committed to doing that. And again, we know from our own experience that trying to source that through the NHS is a non-starter. It's incompatible Mm. with 26 weeks. And local authorities won't fund it. And I understand all the reasons they put forward for not funding that intervention. So then you ask the question, well, what's the point? point? Yeah. And I think that's probably also something that we're going to engage with much more when we're making these applications or responding to to these applications because they're just not compatible with 26 weeks. And we see, don't we, in one of the practice notes um, that govern the area where we work, the signposting of the possibility of care proceedings concluding with um, a care order 
allowing parents to engage in work or assessments outside of proceedings. Now, that as a outcome or exit strategy is only going to work for certain proceedings yeah. and where there's a certain outcome being offered. But again, it's going to be interesting, I think, to see how that develops. But just a bit of therapy for me, because it's always one of my <laughs> one of my bugbears yeah. that I just don't understand the purpose sometimes in those assessments when we can't deliver the recommendation that is inevitably going to be at the end of that report. Yeah. And I just think, you know, from a from a fairness point of view for the parent or in terms of managing their expectations, that 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 comes into the mix, doesn't it? Because if they, you know, they're they're hoping that any assessment of them will make positive recommendations. But, but even if those recommendations are positive in the sense that, you know, yes, you might be able to do it one day, but with X support, mm. it's you can't give them that, that it's how long's a piece of string. And actually, in reality, it may well be that that child's not going to return home to, to their care at that, you know, at the point of final hearing because they haven't yet in, embarked on that work that needs to be done. Yeah. And it, it's, it's then, you know, as, as, as the representative for the parent, how you manage their expectations and i think sometimes it becomes almost a circular argument because you know you get you commission this psychological assessment to say okay what what support what work does this parent need and it comes back as lisa said with all these recommendations but then in addition to the funding point i often find that local authorities will say well it's not within the child's time scale so we can't Mm -hmm. embark on it within these proceedings and we can't recommend rehabilitation home. And so again, it comes back to the question, well, what, what's the point? Yeah. And I think sometimes it is, you know, there's an argument to say that it's a parent being set up to fail by expecting that I if agree. they do engage with that yeah. assessment, it's a step in the right direction to gain that support. And it's a stepping stone pro- process to making that positive change that the professionals say they need to make. But it, it's, for me, it's a question of where does that road lead to? Yeah if anywhere. Hi, I'm Isabel Hawkins. And I'm Bella Tate. And next month, we will be joined by our guest, Fiona Flemington, who is an executive coach, and she's going to be talking to us about imposter syndrome. In the first episode, we'll be talking about what imposter syndrome is, and the second episode, we'll be talking about how you can manage it. So join us then. We look forward to seeing you. The president highlighted in his view again of November 22 that experts, and we've talked about necessity, he says experts should only be instructed where to do so is necessary to assist the court to resolve the proceedings justly rather than where it is merely desirable, helpful. And and that's embodied in in Section 13.6 of the Children and Families Act 2014. And Lisa, are you able to maybe provide some examples maybe in your experience, like where, where the instruction of an expert might well be necessary as opposed to being just merely helpful or desirable to a case? Yeah, of course. I'm sure we've all had experience of what we would term non-accidental injury cases. So where there's an allegation that a child has sustained um, an inflicted injury, usually in that category of case, you're going to be engaging some form of medical expert for example, a paediatrician, or if there's a suggestion that there's a fracture, you may have a radiologist. And I don't see the current guidance causing that category of case to depart from the necessity of a Part 25 application. 
I also think cases where there is an international element and you're having to understand the workings of another jurisdiction, then that would be an obvious case where an expert would be necessary. So your Part 25 criteria would, at face value, be satisfied. And also those categories of cases would allow the court, I think, to depart from 26 weeks if and when necessary. I think an interesting area that that may develop will be around mental health. Yeah. It comes back to the discussion we've just had about psychological assessments, but also psychiatric assessments. And again, whether there is a desire by the judiciary at this early stage of the relaunch to look at treating clinicians to avoid the Part 25 process in terms of expense and delay. And we can probably rehearse very quickly the sorts of arguments that will engage the court in trying to get the right outcome, bearing in mind fairness um, for the parent. Yeah, Um, because you have the... um that's that balance, isn't it, between you have a treating clinician, for example, a, a parent with mental health issues and, and a, who regularly sees a, a psychiatrist. And it's the, you know, is the risk possibly that you can prejudice that relationship if you then look at that treating clinician to provide evidence or information to the court to help the court make welfare decisions. It, it's, it's, I think that, that might be a tricky balance to um, achieve. No, I agree. I agree. Mm. And I think it's going to be, you know, topical when those issues do surface on these cases about what the right approach should be, which track this case should be put on. And as ever, it's always going to be fact specific. Um, There won't be a sort of one rule that fits all. But definitely, I think moving forward... (laughs) We've almost got to be prepared for the judge saying no to any Part 25 application. And then it falls to you if you're driving the application to stay on your feet and to keep going and hope that actually you can encourage the judge to see it from a different perspective. But don't forget from the judicial point of view, they too have been reminded and encouraged to implement these directives and practice notes. So I think just be prepared for that initial resistance. But as ever, you know, if you really think it's an application well made and one that is justified, don't don't give up. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So we've talked quite a bit about what uh, uh, the way forward may be in terms of the necessity for an expert. I just want to sort of go back to the application uh, itself and what may be required in the application. So uh, I think the, the starting point for me would be uh, Rule 25.7, which sets out a number of points that an application should really include, and, and some are obvious, such as the, the expert's identity, uh, the cost, etc., But I think the important point for me is the issues to which that expert evidence is going to relate. And for me, I think that's a really important point because we're increasingly being told now from the president, from the senior courts, that the emphasis has to be on the relevance, but not only of the field, but of that particular expert. 
So I think, you know, in my, in my recent experience, gone are the days where we say, well, you know, that's the expert that we're used to using. Everyone uses that person. Mm-hmm. Um, or, for example, proposing a, a Part 25 application that's agreed between the parties. But the actual expert hasn't been identified yeah. and it's approved in principle with a consent order to be lodged after. I think there's going to be a lot more scrutiny now as to timescales, CVs, and as I say, the relevance of that particular expert. I'm just curious, Lisa, in your experience, what would you say we could improve on in terms of what goes into the applications themselves? So with every application, there has to be a statement in support and whether that becomes a blend between a statement, skeleton argument, counsel's note, or whether distinct documents are produced. I think the end point is the same, that more than ever, written advocacy is going to be really critical. And of course, I think written advocacy is a skill sometimes within our profession that is overlooked. And it's a really good skill to have. And judges, as we know, are super busy And before they come into the courtroom, they will have looked at that application. They will have seen it referenced in the case summary. So you need to be getting in the judge's mind and at the very least planting the seed that this is an application that has merit, i.e. it's an application that's worthy of consideration. The only way you're going to do that is if you've got good written advocacy in front of the judge And in my view, that comes within the statement. Because if you've got the judge's attention, then the identity, the costings, the timescales, obviously all important factors, but may come secondary to persuading the judge that this is necessary. Sadly, in my experience, and I appreciate there are lots of solicitors that are super busy, but recently, or actually for actually some, some time, There's been a culture, I think, of fairly generic statements being produced in support of these applications. And dare I say it, sometimes almost a bit of a copy and paste exercise. And that's got to stop because you definitely are going to get met with a big no if that is the best you're putting in front of the judge before he or she comes into the courtroom. So to answer the question, I think the real skill and attention now needs to focus on that statement and it needs to be crafted and tailor-made to the facts of that case. And you need to walk the judge through where you are now, where you want to get to, and why on that journey having an expert on board is absolutely necessary You need to be showing the judge why he or she won't be able to conclude the proceedings justly absent that expert. And you need to give the judge a roadmap. So I think that is something that we all now need to accept and work hard on. And those cases that rightly justify an expert coming on board, I think will be made by the written advocacy and not necessarily the oral advocacy. 
Yeah, I agree with you there, Lisa, in terms of the importance of the written advocacy and, and it being as important, if not sometimes more important than the oral advocacy that we make when we're on our feet. And I'm just going off uh, on a bit of a tangent, but I, I did re- recently attended um, an advocacy uh, training session. It was remote, but, but the gentleman who was hosting that particular session, uh, Casey, he was stressing the importance of written advocacy um, and he was talking about particularly in particular skeleton arguments you know how, how we form them and what the purpose is but yeah I absolutely agree with you there in terms of persuading the judge it, it has to be there on paper when the judge is preparing the case the night before he needs to see and prepare himself doesn't he to formulate the argument in his or her own mind and before they even hear exactly from the parties thank you Lisa just in terms of important factors to consider when choosing an expert are you able to maybe just help the listeners in terms of what what are the important factors that the parties and their legal representatives should be considering when considering appointing an appropriate expert because you can have you know you have your generic psychologists psychiatrists or um, various different paediatricians doctors but but in terms of actually really drilling down into the, the, the relevant we talk about necessity but we have to when identifying the expert they have to have relevance to the issues in the case so what are you able to elaborate more on on that in terms of what steps need to be taken to identify the appropriate expert to yeah a case? well I think with these cases it's always a team effort so we play our role as barristers in the courtroom But we only get to that point because there's a team of people behind the scenes that are getting the paperwork organised and in place. And to get to that point, your team, so your solicitor or your paralegal, needs to play their part in doing homework and undertaking due diligence. So you obtain, in my view, a broad spectrum of proposed experts You pull in their CVs and you consider their background because each will have a different and distinct background. I think if you're making the application for a parent, you're under a duty to think which expert would be best matched to your clients. So, for example, I've had plenty of cases where the mother may have suffered some sort of sexual abuse or trauma And that is going to be something that is further considered within a psychological assessment setting. But the idea of that mother having to speak to a male is just something you know your client will struggle with. Mm. When I say struggle, they won't be the best version of themselves. And if we come back to the cornerstone of every topic the three of us have discussed so far fairness yeah. it is is critical in that regard so you want to give the parent the fairest opportunity to have the best outcome that they see so i think homework due diligence making sure they're credible reputable ideally somebody that is already familiar within the court center that that you practice within You want attractive timescales, but I do think that should compromise the quality of the expert. And matching is also, in my view, an important component Mm -hmm. of that exercise. Thank you, Lisa. Is there anything you want to add, Callum? No, I think I would just emphasise what Lisa's already said in terms of the matching process. I think one common argument that you often come across after that report has been received, it's not a very positive report in respect of your client is whether they have 
in effect been able to engage from from the outset and whether yeah. that was the right expert for them and i think you know in that sort of circumstance you know hindsight is a wonderful thing so to speak and i think you sort of get yourself into hot water then as to whether if you were to for example go down the road of well in fact we think this expert may be better we need a new application it's not the type of thing that is really going to be entertained by the court anymore so Mm -hmm. we need to ensure that we from the get-go know which expert we want which one is going to give us the fairest outcome we could ask for and again I think it goes back to the point of relevance of of that particular expert not just the field. No I agree and and again you know like with the PLO it's it's going to take a change in culture a culture shift isn't it and and it'll be interesting to see where we are in even six to 12 months time there you go yeah that's the podcast (laughs) (laughs) diarized there we go um i think we're just going to um, finish this session with our roll the dice game oh it's landed on the quick fire questions (laughs) here we go ready callum yep tea or coffee coffee what's the favorite room in your house the bedroom Oh. <laughs> uh, worst thing someone could say to you on the underground? Uh, move. <laughs> Favourite place to go on holiday? Barcelona. Biggest phobia? Oh, spiders. First celebrity crush? It would have to be David Tennant, which I know is controversial. <laughs> ah. <laughs> uh, Favourite season in the year? Summer. Best city you've ever lived in? Liverpool. Yay. Biggest inspiration? <laughs> oh, I know it's going to be really cringy, but I'm going to say Madonna because I can't think of anyone else and her drive and determination. Well, she's still going, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. there's a lot to be said for that. Despite the constant face changes. <laughs> um, less said about that, the better. Um, Favourite ice cream flavour? Oh, strawberry. How do you like your eggs in the morning? Fried. Too cold or too hot? Mm, too hot. Best restaurant you've ever been to? Well, I recently went to one called Manifest in the Baltic Triangle, I'd I'd recommend. Worst thing a client has ever said to you? Uh, I thought you were about 16 when I saw you. (laughs) (laughs) Who is your favourite member of the Beatles? Oh, John Lennon. Who would you play in a movie? No, who would play you in a movie, sorry. Do you know, I think I have to say David Tennant again. Mm. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Um, if you could visit any period of time, when would you go? I would say the 1980s. Mm, good, good period. Good music. Yeah. Favourite animal? Dogs. Best thing to do at the end of a hard day? Binge watch some modern family. Oh, yeah. That's good, that was it. Thank you very much, Callum. Uh, and that's it for this session of Family Law and More. Please do remember to follow us on all our social media accounts, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. And if you want to submit any questions, then please feel free to send them to podcast at unit.law. Thank you. Thanks, Liana. Thanks, Liana.